is Bloomberg Surveillance. I am modestly bullish near term, but I'm bearish into immediate term. I expect the S&P to decline to a low double-digit percentage this year. I think if we're going to take long dollar positions, uh, I think the euro is the way to go right now. Short the euro, long the dollar. I don't think inflation's too low. The public doesn't care that core PCE inflation is 1.4%. They're oblivious to it. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning across this nation on Sirius and XM. Bloomberg 1200 Boston, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, 960 the Bay Area, Bloomberg 991 FM, Washington as well. We're brought to you by uh, Interactive Brokers, our Forex brief by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit ib at ibkr.com slash Forex. Quickly, Sterling 141.01, weaker Sterling still. And I'm going to look at Japanese yen, stronger 112.27 as well. Mike, on important housing data. we got the Case-Shiller numbers out for December, and Vinny Del Judice has those at the first word desk. Michael, the report tracks 20 major cities year-over-year December, a 5.74% increase in home prices, same as the prior month with revisions. December month-over-month up 0.8%, a bit slower than the prior month. At the Bloomberg First Word Desk, I'm Vinny Del Judice. Let's go back to New York. Vinny, uh, Vinny Mike, what do you see there? Uh, single, we see yeah, steady, yeah, yeah, steady yeah. growth uh, across the country. The uh, national index up 5.4% over the last... 12 months, I guess you want to live in Tampa, Florida, at least you did in December, in terms of the biggest annual gain, nine-tenths of a percent. Um, yeah. We're still seeing gains in the sand cities, San Diego, Phoenix, Las Vegas. Um, There's a nice first derivative to all this. Cleveland behind. I'll, I'll give you know, New Cleveland York uh, down three-tenths. So yeah. Good thing you're not moving. In Boston as well, down fractionally as well. San Francisco scrolling up. Uh, goes decidedly yeah. the other way yeah. as well. Let's jump over to our equity coverage this morning. Uh, David Wilson uh, looking at all sorts of stuff. Home Depot was jaw-dropping. There's no other way to put it. Certainly has been well-received, no question about that. Uh, Home Depot shares of 3.5% in early trading. The largest home improvement retailer posted fiscal fourth-quarter earnings and sales, the top analyst average estimates in Bloomberg survey. The results show Home Depot is largely immune to the slumping demand faced by other retailers. Uh, you've got shares arrival lows up about 2.5%, and that company will report fourth-quarter results tomorrow. Then you have Macy's up 5.5%. The biggest U.S. department store owner had a smaller decline in fiscal fourth quarter sales than analysts expected. Adjusted earnings were $2.09 a share, which beat the average estimate by $0.21. On the deal front, Western Digital down 8%. The memory chip maker lost a $3.8 billion investment from China's Tsinghua Unisplendor, which withdrew after learning U.S. regulators would investigate the deal. Even so, Western Digital is going ahead with a proposed takeover of SanDisk. The purchase price was cut to $15.8 billion, and SanDisk shares are down 2%, almost 3% now in early trading. Valiant Pharmaceuticals up 2.5%. The drug developer said it will restate earnings for last year and the year before. The revisions follow a review by Valiant's board of the company's relationship with the mail-order pharmacy Philidor. BHP Billiton down mm. in early trading. The world's largest mining company reduced its dividend for the first time in 15 years after fiscal first-half earnings plummeted 92%. Now, BHP Billiton 
duly listed company. Its Australian shares are down 2.5% here in the yeah. U.S. where they trade as American depository receipts. ADRs for its U.K. shares are down yeah. 3.5%. One more. One more. Fitbit. Yeah, I saw that. I, thought, I knew you were going there. You're looking at my stomach. Down 14%. My stomach, let alone yours. Uh, the maker of fitness tracking devices forecast first quarter revenue and earnings will come up short of estimates. The right. outlook reflects the cost of rolling out Fitbit's newest trackers globally. Very good. good thing this is radio. Nobody has to look at either one. Of yeah, that's an ugly sight to behold <laughs> as well. Uh, Dan Demo uh, has made a career of looking at precious metals and particularly looking at mining with USAA uh, out of uh, TCU where he single-handedly reinvented offensive football. That was crazy what TCU did a couple years ago. It was. Football. It was yeah, amazing. We've had a great comeback. It's, it's, it's been good. Wonderful to have you here. We hear about you. We never see you. We're thrilled to have you in New York. BHP Billiton, I interviewed their CFO today, and it was ugly. I mean, they're talking about the word hope. What is the hope for the global mining industry right now? Well, you got to separate the precious metals from the base metals for sure. Um, iron ore is still in an awful glut. Uh, the guys keep producing mines, keep building mines. Uh, Rio and BHP both continue to build because they can produce at a lower cost than anybody else. So they're going to try to drive everybody out of the business. They're Are they? To... I mean, that's a key question. And this is, Mike, this goes back. I mentioned this Andrew Mellon economics of the 30s. That's the only hope, isn't it? It is, but it's always a false hope uh, because mines never close because nobody wants to operate them. The banks don't want to take them over, so these mines just keep going. You're not going to see China shut in supply either. China needs those jobs. So is your base away from your expertise in precious metals, is your base for lower prices or stability at these low prices? Yes. How? Uh, well, what's How, the cycle? Can you tell the guests that single answers on radio don't work? Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> I think Tom wants a, 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 a more detailed explanation, but basically what's the cycle uh, length here? I mean, the, the cycle is still – you're going to have to see steel production shutting because we have too much steel production. It, it was all built for a much faster China. It was built for a China growing at seven and a half, eight percent even up to 10%. China's not growing that fast. It doesn't need that much steel. Plus, it's converting to from an infrastructure economy to a consumer economy. Consumers don't use much steel. They buy clothes. They don't buy iron beams. And so, therefore, you've, you're having to readjust the supply. The whole world is having to, to adjust. Is China adjusting? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how they're keeping all these factories open, these mines open, because they need to keep people employed. Are they actually going to shut in this production? We've actually seen the first signs recently where they actually where they talked about shutting in production, uh, actually going in and paying to lay off people, uh, but they can't afford to. It's 1.2 percent of their mm. population is in the steel mills. You can't lay those people off. They're going to have a protest. They're going to have an uprising. Social social issues. So right. let's go over to your expertise in precious uh, mining. James Steele at HSBC on fundamentals. Go long gold. Chris Verone at Strategus on charts says go long gold, not with a lot of confidence, but he's there. Are you? Can you link gold price still into gold mining shares? What's that correlation? That correlation is very high, and it's actually come back. That, that one of the things that makes us very happy is the gold mining companies have actually cut the fat. They've actually done a good job reducing operating costs, so they've returned back to the days of having operating leverage. Four years ago, they had no operating leverage because they got fat, dumb, and happy, 
Every year, gold price would go up a hundred bucks. Right. So they never had to control costs because gold price saved them. When gold price started falling a hundred bucks every year, you had to start cutting costs. They're now to a level they can actually make money at these prices. Right. They couldn't make money at twelve hundred a year. I don't want to get you in trouble with the USAA compliance police, but is there an industry? performer who has best practices, not buy, hold, sell, but is there somebody that has best practices in precious metal mining? Yeah, by far the CEO's done the best job is Mark Bristow at Ringgold. He runs every operation. He prices everything at $1,000 gold. He's been doing that for years. Probably the second best, the, the one who reformed everything, is Gary Goldberg at Newmont. He was the first to come in of the big guys and actually start cutting costs. Uh, he started putting out these billion-dollar targets for cutting costs, and people would ask me, well, what do you think about that? I think, well, it actually ticks me off. If he can find these cost savings so easily, what were they doing before? Why weren't they managing their business before? They've now come around to managing their business, and that's why Newmont's doing pretty good. I mean, BRS, uh, the symbol BRS, the, the plunge is something. How do you know when to buy a wise one? When to buy? Well, you always buy. You always have to own a little bit in this space. Because you want it for the defensive characteristics. We always tell everybody at USA, if I'm doing well, the rest of your portfolio is probably not doing well, so you want to root against us. We're the insurance. We're the the house insurance Mm -hmm. when you're in the woods, when the forest getting a little dry. If things are looking a little more, a little worse, you take on a little bit more insurance. When things are looking good, you don't want to be in gold. You don't want to have a heavy position in gold because U.S. stocks will do fine. European stocks will do fine. It's when things aren't going well, when you're worried about things not going well, that gold's not going to do well. Look at the move in Rand Gold. Wow, what a spike up it's been recently. Well, the whole space, it's been incredible. Why were you here like six weeks ago? Nobody wanted to talk to us six weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) See, insured salesman. That's right. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, we were, nobody cared about gold until all of a sudden we had a few issues and a few concerns and gold came back. In August, people were calling gold the barbaric relic. Mm Mm-hmm. Now no, we people, call John Tucker that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now people want to talk to us again. It, it, it is an interesting oh. turn. But it, it, what, what is driving yeah. it? you got worries about U.S. recession. We don't think it can go to recession, mm-hmm. but that probability has increased a little bit. The 10-year Treasury is showing you that. Right. We have geopolitical stability. That's never going away, but it's ticked up again. Uh, worries about the global economy. That's ticked up. And central banks continue to devalue <laughs> their currency, and that drives gold prices higher. Dan Dembo, he's with USAA. Uh, really decades of expertise on uh, the precious world of precious uh, metals. Don't be a stranger. Come back again. Visiting from San Antonio. Um, futures negative two. Green the other way. S&P goes up. 10 points, sort of the churn to the market that we see with a 181.10 year up a good six basis points. Now let's check in with John Tucker and get the latest world and national headlines. John. All right. Thanks, Michael. It's on Microsoft founder Bill Gates uh, weighing in on the dispute over Apple's refusal to have the FBI break into a terrorist's iPhone. I do believe that that with the right safeguards, there are cases where the government on our behalf, like stopping uh, terrorism, which could get worse in the future, that 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 is valuable. Uh, Gates is stopping by Bloomberg Television and Radio this morning. Polls show Donald Trump poised to win his third consecutive Republican presidential nominating contest tonight when Nevada holds its caucuses. 
And Secretary of State John Kerry bringing details of a new Syrian ceasefire to skeptical senators appearing before the Republican-led Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And members of Congress try to head off a New Jersey transit strike authorized for March 13th. Last time New Jersey Railroad employees walked off the job was 33 years ago. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists, more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. John Tucker, thanks so much. Uh, From New York, Bloomberg Surveillance. Market Drivers brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. When it comes to winter elements, put your best four wheels forward with Mercedes-Benz 4Matic all-wheel drive. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts with low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. U.S. stock index futures, their little change as investors assess global growth prospects and earnings amid renewed concern over the Chinese economy while oil prices Fear between gains and losses, they're right now lower. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg with S&P E-mini futures down about three points. Dow E-mini futures down three as well. And NASDAQ E-mini futures down 12. The DAX in Germany is down six tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury down 14 thirty seconds. The yield 1.80 percent. Yield on the two-year, 0.77 percent. NYMEX crude oil down 1.7 percent now, down 55 cents to $32.84 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1 percent or $12 to $12.22.20 an ounce. The euros at $1.10.06. The British pound at $1.4078. The yen won 12.26. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thank you very much. British pound trading for uh, 140.78, down half a percent again today, uh, extending the biggest decline we've seen since 2010. Mark Carney went to Parliament and said, uncertainty over Britain's future membership of the European Union is weighing on the currency. And he noted that options are suggesting further declines ahead. Shahab Jalinos is global head of foreign exchange for Credit Suisse. And I guess the question then becomes, Shahab, How low can it go? How far down does the pound go and uh, how much of an impact does how how much of an impact does the vote have on this? In other words, are we going to see a lot of volatility as the polls come out between now and June 23rd? Hi. uh, Good morning. Well, we think uh, if Brexit becomes uh, a real possibility, at least as suggested by polls, the pound has a lot further uh, to go on the downside. If you look at the pound against the euro, um, it's still 6% stronger than its average rate since 2009. Um, our fair value indicators suggest that the pound is not cheap at this point. It's only roughly at fair value. So uh, on that basis, uh, there's a lot more room for downside as this issue uh, reaches its focal point uh, around June from our perspective. And in the event of a Brexit vote, uh, clearly there's uh, a lot of uncertainty uh, in terms of what type of economic arrangement would replace the current arrangements. Um, and in that type of environment, we could even see the pound fall towards uh, the 120 against the dollar. 120 over what time period? Over the, the next year or so, we think that's, that's feasible in the event of a Brexit decision. Remember, the UK is like a very large leverage business. It's basically like a bank. Um, there's 
assets and liabilities of 600% of GDP. Uh, there's a current account deficit of around 5% of GDP. In 2015, the UK received a net a portfolio and FDI flows of around 20% of GDP. So these are large sums of money and uh, the type of uncertainty that a Brexit vote would create uh, is significant and uh, sufficient to take us, I think, to, to that 120 level against the dollar. After all, this is a vote that happens you know, very infrequently. The last major vote on the EU uh, was in the mid-70s. Uh, and in that time, we've had the pound trade almost to one against the dollar for, for various reasons. So uh, going to 120 wouldn't even take us to, to the lows. So this type of event is, is big enough, in our view, to, to deliver that kind right. of outcome. We're getting these outlier calls. Uh, I'd like you to discuss the ramifications of getting anywhere near a 130 and through that to your um, not call, but extrapolation, I'll call it, to a 120-week sterling. Do you just assume that means end of Rubin dollar-like 2002 dollar strength? Well, I think the question really becomes why would anybody be upset in the U.K. Uh, if the pound goes to 120 against the dollar? Who would actually try to stop that happening? Um, I think that's incredibly, yeah. that's incredibly important. Why is that? Well, so here's the, here's the thing. We have low inflation in the UK at the moment, so the central bank probably doesn't mind uh, a currency that goes lower as long as it doesn't become uh, incredibly volatile as it does so. Now, that, that is a risk, um, but, but in any case, you know, let's assume that you go down there in a relatively contained way. As I said, we're still 6% stronger against the euro than we were uh, with the pound as, as an average level. Uh, in the period since 2009. So your starting point is not a pound that's very uh, weak at this point in time. And this is the key issue here is that the euro has fallen a long way uh, against the dollar, uh, and the pound resisted falling with the euro despite the euro area being the pound's uh, or the UK's biggest economic trading partner. So to some extent, the pound got, got a pass, you know, from uh, from the euro's fall by being seen as a bit more dollar-like. Now, all we're really doing is re revaluing the pounds to reflect the existing realities. And in that context, as I said, going to 120 uh, is, not, is not really that far away from where we are right now. And critically, I don't see why the central bank would be too upset with a move to that kind of a level, given where inflation levels are. And even the politicians have generally been criticized right. for, for not rebalancing but, the economy. Shab, this is critical. What does it mean, given a dollar strength that diminishes U.S. export industries. I mean, is that part of the follow-on effect? Well, I think this is a, you know, at the end of the day, the U.K. is not a, a significant enough economic partner for the yeah. U.S., whereby the pound falling to 120 against the dollar would materially change the overall export outlook for the U.S., in my view. I think, uh, think currencies like uh, China, Euro, these, these matter a lot more uh, to, the, to the U.S. But you raise a wider point, and that's the fact that the dollar itself has now got to a point where many believe uh, there is an, a negative effect on GDP in the U.S. via the exports channel, uh, and also even a, a potential uh, hindrance to inflation expectations as well. So that's resulting in some changes in some of our other forecasts. For example, we lowered our dollar-yen forecast to 105 uh, in 12 months' time to reflect the fact that uh, the dollar is now being held back by, by this change in perception. But I think from the U.K.'s perspective, 
um, of the pound going to 120 is, is more of a local UK story, and I don't think um, in, 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 in a, it would influence uh, what the US does or the dollar does more Shab, Thank you so much, Shab Jelinus, with a uh, not outlier call, but a new trend towards significant big figure moves. Something yeah, definitely to keep an eye on. I mean, it, uh, it yeah. raises a whole new risk category. And a reaffirmation of dollar strength. There seems to be a heated debate about where that goes, but uh, what we want to do is get you out in front of the conversation, and we try to do that. Uh, Michael McKee and Tom Keen. Uh, we need to get the markets open. Futures, a uh, slight tilt, negative, negative four. Stay with us. Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. We are cutting down to the opening bell, brought to you by the refined Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland. It continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive on at your local Jeep dealer today. Jeep, the official vehicle of Killington Resort. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. And good morning. I'm Karen Moscow, along with Tom Keene and Michael McKee, and the opening bell brought to you by SEI. Imagine a global operating platform designed to deliver a differentiated and technologically rich investor experience. Find out how SEI can help you succeed at SEIC.com slash imagine. Stocks are lower at the open. The S&P 500 down three-tenths percent or six points to 1939. Dow Jones Industrial Average down two-tenths percent or 44 points to 16,575. The Nasdaq's down half percent or 21 points to 45.49. Ten-year Treasury down 14.30 seconds, the yield 1.80 percent, and the yield on the two-year 0.77 percent. NYMEX crude oil is down 1.8 percent or 61 cents to 32.77 a barrel. COMEX gold up nine-tenths percent or $10.50 to 12.2060 an ounce. The euros at $1.1004, the yen 112.36. Tom and Mike. Cam Oscar, thank you very much. It feels like a cereal. When we last left the people of Argentina, they were in a dispute with Paul Singer and other hedge fund managers over bonds that had not been paid. Now we are moving towards a settlement. And for some people, it may be a good deal. And for some people, it may not. And that's why we bring in our referee, Katja (laughs) Porzikansky, to explain where we are. I want to get an update on where we are in terms of uh, the settlement with the holdouts and the Argentine bond deal. And then who's the winner and who's the loser? Absolutely. So where we are is probably closer to a settlement and putting this all behind us than we've ever been before. So we can all move on with our lives. It's been 15 years. Um, you won't have anything to do. <laughs> I won't have anything that. to do. I'll retire. Um, the, Argentina made a proposal, a formal proposal, on February 5th. Uh, it extended to various types of bondholders and, and exactly what they've done so far in their legal steps. Uh, they had, depending on what you've done in the court, you have different options that pertain to you. The uh, holdouts like Elliott um, and uh, run by Paul Singer. Uh, Aurelius management aren't very happy with the deal because the because of what the steps that they've taken and the kind of bonds that they hold, they feel that this deal offers a better uh, resolution to, to others. Like, for example, Kenneth Dart, um, the foam cup magnet, uh, he got basically 100 percent of his claim off of this deal. And Elliot would be getting 72.5 percent of their claim. So they're not happy. 
But things are going in the direction in the favor of the Argentines because they've shown this goodwill uh, under President Macri that former President Kirchner simply did not do. Is this basically Macri coming uh, back and saying, look, let's get this over with and what do we need to do to settle it? Exactly. And that attitude has been monumental in changing the opinion and the mind of uh, the judge that's been presiding over this case for, for many, many years. He says this attitude change is, is the game changer that I needed to see. And as a result, so far, he's been kind of making these decisions that have really gone against uh, Elliot and turned the tables on them uh, and, and, in a way, removed a lot of the leverage that they had in, in, this whole, uh, in this whole saga. So we could be seeing a pressure on them to settle sooner rather than later in a way that we hadn't seen before. Do we have a time frame for signing the documents? I would love uh, a time frame that I knew could be true. They, the uh, Argentines have basically presented a settlement that they would like everybody to get involved in by February 29th. Um, so it's Monday. Yes. So uh, it, it's soon. But it, that doesn't necessarily mean that Elliot will, will get involved by February can, 29th. Can they stop it? Can they make this go on longer? They can try. This is The thing with this case is that everybody has a very striking incentive to end it as soon as possible. Everyone wants to get this over with as soon as possible. Uh, the thing with Elliot and, and what's happening now in the courts is the – if you remember, there's this injunction yeah. um, which made everything far more complicated. There's an injunction that basically prevents Argentina from paying its restructured debt until it pays Elliot. That – the judge that – that designed that injunction, said, because of all this good faith that I've seen from Argentina in the last couple of weeks, I'm going to remove that injunction, even if Elliot isn't paid yet. That has been this this huge turning of the table events that we've seen. And um, as a result, uh, that, is, that may put pressure on Elliot to settle sooner rather than later because their leverage is now gone. Well, that's good news because it means Katya will come back in a week or so, maybe next Monday, and explain how we've gotten through all this. Katya Porzakonski, thanks for Thank updating you. us on the – this was a big deal some, some months ago. The world was going to come to an end because of the mm. Argentina situation. And see, they made nice, Tom. Uh, Tracy Holloway with us. Uh, uh, Tracy who? Your, Tracy Holloway from Bloomberg. I seem to remember that like name. I've been so quickly or. forgotten. It's amazing. Um, in the back and forth of surveillance today, we've been whipsawed by all sorts of interesting interviews, is the idea of top of market. I am thunderstruck by your note on Morgan Stanley and commercial real estate. Well, yeah. they have just flat out adjusted. So I wish this is one of those times when I wish uh, maybe we weren't doing radio and I could actually show you the chart. Because if you look at a chart of commercial real estate prices, they have blown past their 2007 peak. And obviously residential housing has recovered as well, but by no means uh, has it grown to the extent that commercial real estate has. And so we have this big debate about froth in the market. And now we have Morgan Stanley analysts who are led by Richard Hill, who's a veteran of the commercial real estate industry, saying they see flat growth for the year. And what's more is they're talking about a potentially very bearish dynamic where investors, because they're not getting the sort of leveraged returns that they're used to, start demanding more income from commercial properties that potentially companies just won't be able to come up with. Remember, we're talking about an earnings recession in the U.S., it seems unlikely you're suddenly going to get a big uptick in income from commercial properties at the same time. The idea of commercial properties speaks to the Fed. Is a linkage that the Fed has provided a unique monetary 
milieu, which is allowed for Ooh, Steve Roach's <laughs> bubble to occur? Um, well, it's hard to argue otherwise when you see that commercial real estate chart. When you see chart. commercial real estate, yeah. I mean, something like 18% above its 2007 peak. That's pretty amazing. And it's not like anyone in 2007 was saying that commercial real estate was undervalued. Mm-hmm. And we're now 18% above it. And, of course, we have seen a lot of yield-hungry investors, to use the old cliché, pile into the asset class. Uh, they've been buying commercial mortgage-backed bonds quite a lot, sales of which are perhaps unsurprisingly now slowing uh following the interest rate rise from the Fed and also some new rules coming in. So headwinds to that sector, for sure. You have been touring the world. We have uh, barely struggled by without you. What did you learn on your global jaunt? My global tour. That's Yeah, I was in Hong Kong for a week and then Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, the oil-soaked Middle East, now even more oil-soaked, I think. What did I learn? Um, I had some interesting discussions with high-end uh, retail salespeople in Hong Kong. They've seen a significant slowdown where once you used to have a Tiffany's on every corner of every block, you now have one on every other corner of every other block. Uh, in Abu Dhabi, I am reliably told there is a lot of consternation about lower oil prices. A lot of consultants and lawyers have been hired to talk about what um, the Emirate can do. Uh, unfortunately, so far, it seems they're just telling the Emiratis what they want to hear. So we'll have to see how okay. that plays out. Are you here tomorrow or are you gone for another 12 weeks? Uh, <coughs> sadly, Tom, I, I will be here. No, I'm thrilled to be back. Good. Tracy Elway with Global Markets. We'll see a lot of her in the coming days. Does a fabulous job of gleaning. Uh, street research and coming up with important insight you need on economics, finance, investment, and occasionally alloy on uh, international relations as well. Uh, I read on the screen the VIX 19.80, the VIX up 0.34 points. Let's check in with John Tucker now and get the latest world and national headlines, John. All right, Michael and Tom, the Pentagon plan for closing Guantanamo's detention center. Moving detainees to the U.S. isn't expected to get a warm welcome, but it's presented to Congress today the administration's last-ditch effort to make good on President Obama's campaign vow to close Guantanamo may only further antagonize lawmakers. Republican presidential candidates took last-minute appeals for support across Nevada and ahead of today's caucuses. At one rally, Texas Senator Ted Cruz said he liked the thought of Hillary Clinton behind bars. The ceasefire proposal for Syria getting support with strings today. Turkey's deputy prime minister says his country supports the plan but suggest its military could continue firing on Syrian Kurdish groups in Syria in response to attacks. A migrant crisis in France reaching a peak today. Charity groups making a last-ditch effort to delay implementation of an order by French authorities that refugees must move out of their camp in Calais by tonight. The camp of the port city has become a flashpoint. Authorities say the slum-like present a slum-like site presents sanitary and other risks. Anywhere from 800 to 3,000 people live there. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists in more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Michael and Tom. Uh, John Tucker, thank you so much. Negative 60 on the Dow, S&P down 9 points, 1936 on the S&P uh, 500. The yen, 112.26, still strong, but not like earlier uh, this morning. Michael McKee and Tom Keene next on The Economy, Bloomberg Surveillance.
This hour of surveillance brought to you by Westchester Subaru. Visit westchestersubaru.com. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. Stocks are falling from six-week highs as investors assess global growth prospects and earnings while oil prices retreat. And we check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. The S&P 500 is down three-tenths percent, down six points to 1938. Dow Jones Industrial Average down three-tenths percent or 47 points to 16,574. NASDAQ down four-tenths percent or 17 points to 45.52. Ten-year Treasury is down 13.30 seconds. The Yield 1.79%. Yield on the two-year, 0.76%. NYMEX crude oil down 2.5% or 82 cents to 32.57 a barrel. COMEX gold up 1% or $11.90 to 12.22 an ounce. The euro, $1.0997. The yen, 112.28. The London Stock Exchange Group is in merger talks with Deutsche Bourse, a tie-up that would create one of the biggest exchange companies in the world. Western Digital to buy SanDisk for $15.8 billion, sticking with plans to combine the makers of memory chips after a potential Chinese investor backed out of another deal amid a national security probe. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Every once in a while, there's a research piece that jumps out and hits you over the head. After I picked myself up all the, off the ground, I said to Rachel Wurstspan and, and our team, would you please find Josh Silverstein? He's with Deutsche Bank out of Lehigh. And he covers Parsley, Permium, Newfield, and Kana, Q&P resources uh, in oil. Josh, good morning. You call it the opportunity curve. Is the opportunity upon us? Hi, good morning, Tom. Uh, there is some certain, uh, certainly some opportunities to the upside in the energy sector right now, but we do find it to be a challenging investing environment. And until we find at least a little bit more clarity in terms of, of oil price direction, we want to stay more nimble. We want to focus on our deepest, high, highest quality inventory assets uh, and really have a balance sheet focus as well. Well, um, these uh, are all, you know, investments that are, have been affected by the price of oil. Do you have an underlying call that then makes them worth looking at? Sure. You know, we're at roughly thirty dollars a barrel right now, and you know, we we don't see this as a sustainable price in our longer term you know, forecast rise to roughly $65 per barrel in, in 2018. Uh, and that's really what we see some of our investments predicated on. However, we do like some of the, the downside protection that these, that, that these companies offer in terms of uh, lower leverage than, than average and really a, a deep, high-quality inventory that can sustain lower prices for, for a period of time. And that's why we feel more comfortable in, in owning companies that are exposed to the Permian Basin and the Anadarko Basin. Well, certainly lower leverage is key. Uh, we have the big um, bank reset coming up in a month or so, and a lot of companies may not be here anymore. Your uh, five, you suggest, are in pretty good shape. We shouldn't worry about any of them. 
Yeah, uh, most of these companies are in fairly good shape. We're definitely seeing another round of, of capital raises uh, from the sector right now, very similar to what we saw at this point last year. Uh, it, it seems like most of these companies are finding opportunities to issue equity, and so they're going to enhance their, their balance sheets from that standpoint. Uh, you know, we are really, you know, we want to go after these companies that have the better balance sheets. If you were just to take a spread of the kind of the, the top ten balance sheets in our coverage universe versus the uh, the bottom ten since December first, that's roughly a forty percent gap between the two of those. So it really goes to show you that balance sheets are the the best drivers of equity performance right now. Why is there balance sheets like they are if so much of the industry is on the edge of grim? How do they pull that off? Yeah, it, it's a combination of, of how they wanted to set up their assets over the last few years. Certainly when oil was at a much higher prices at 80 to to $100, capital was uh, a lot easier to come by, and so more companies were taking on debt versus acquiring with equity or growing with equity. Uh, these companies have either grown uh, with the balance sheet in good position and have had the assets that would allow them to do that, or in the case of some of the other companies that have transitioned from more of a, a natural gas focus to an oil focus over the past few years, they've sold off assets and really focused their, their capital deployment in their best basins. I mean, I, I look at this and it's remarkable. What's the backstory you see in the action of uh, executive officers within the oil business now? Is it, I got to get to Memorial Day and clear my balance sheet? Is it, they're putting together their 2018 business plan. What's the mood out there? Yeah, I think for them it's trying to figure out how how best we want to attack 2016 but also preserve the option value for, for 2017, 2018 when, when prices come about. Uh, I think that's why a lot of these companies are, are seeing the opportunity to go in and issue capital right now uh, because it, it helps them get through some of these, these bridge periods. Uh, the other option would be also divesting assets, and, and while you may not want to uh, divest them at, at today's prices because the valuations are certainly lower now than where they were a year or two ago, uh, it's, it's necessary to go and do that, and you can come out stronger on the other side. So that really mm. seems to be the mood right now. Which of these companies is best uh, positioned to pay off early? People are going to want to see progress before they, you know, they, they want to see somebody making money, I think, before they want to go all in on any kind of energy play. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, you know, it's certainly more of a trading environment than an investing in environment right now. You know, amongst these these companies, uh, you know, one of our, our favorites right now is Newfield Energy, uh, ticker NFX. Uh, they're one of the biggest companies that's levered to the Anadarko Basin. Uh, it's more of a of an early stage play, kind of in its second or third year of development, with plenty of, of resource upside there. Um, so that would be the one that, that I would point to for that basin. And we like most of the the smaller cap premium focused companies. Uh, you know, they are certainly the, some of the more expensive companies on a relative basis, right. they're the ones that hold up better. Oh, just one final question today, Josh. Do you, um, do you anticipate a feeding frenzy if oil breaks down to whatever new level? There's a raging debate about what oil does here. At the, you know, the resistance level, Brent 34, NYMEX 33-ish, you know, give or take a couple dollars. If we break down to new lows, what happens? 
Yeah, there's certainly going to be a lot more distress in, in the system if, if that happens, and it may actually be a good thing to to flush more capital out, out of the system. Um, but I also think that that provides some good opportunities if we really get down towards towards those levels because we're we're well below break-even economics at that point. And it, while the the, the pain mm-hmm. may may come on the way down, it certainly provides some of the the greater opportunity uh, on the upside because at least then you would have some some better clarity over direction of crude. Josh Silverstein, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank uh, this morning on oil. Really interesting, folks, away from the Exxon's of the world what some of small oil is doing uh, versus uh, others out there. Michael, I'm I'm doing a chart for tomorrow, which is a hyper-fancy pound sterling chart with the linear extrapolation out to what you and I have heard today, which is okay. 131.20. Uh-huh. The end of, is a really sophisticated chart. The end of 17 and even into early spring 2019. Is a, a lot. My summary of that is a lot's got to happen to get the news flow to get to the kind of weak sterling that we're looking at. But the interesting thing is a lot could happen. I mean, this I is, agree. Could I have, totally have, agree. I mean, who knows? But it, suppose you have a Brexit vote, then you have a Scottish exit from the UK vote. Um, there would be ongoing and continuous pressure. Yeah. On uh, sterling. Now, then the the knock-on effects to the Bank of England, to inflation, um, to policy there. I mean, the whole thing <clears throat> could be absolutely fascinating. I, I don't agree that it's a simplistic extrapolation to some level based on new trend. It's it, a lot. This is trend going back to the autumn of 2014, which I think is a, it's a lot of data points. And it, granted, you know, we've really broken down. We're almost on to two standard deviations going back 30 years which is like Thatcher-like. I mean, that's where, you know, we are. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. But the idea of going from 141, where are we now in Sterling? I'm looking at the... 147. 141, call it 141. To go down 11 big figures, or I can't even do the math, 21 big figures, 20? It's extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary what we've heard on this show today. Very, very different, folks. It's just fascinating. And don't forget, all of our media, besides us live on Bloomberg Radio Plus and, of course, on our good signals um, nationwide and worldwide, um, all sorts of other ways to listen to what we're doing, including Mike McKee and myself out on Twitter, with our good team advancing some of these interviews uh, to you as well. At B Surveillance. At B Surveillance is one way to to get there. Yep. Right now, it looks like uh, we have opened the day down. It, it was a lot of questions about yeah. what was going to happen because oil was going up or down. All you need to know now is oil is lower and that yeah. has stocks lower. Yeah, one thing different from yesterday, a little bit of curve steepening versus the shock and awe of curve flattening yesterday. The yen, 112.27, global litmus paper. Also looking again, as Mike mentions, the Dow, negative 41. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. <laughs> 